day, from moment to moment, you hold the universe together and you hold our lives together. So thank you for the ways that we can trust you in the midst of life that can be shaky at times and be overwhelming at times with the difficulties and the challenges that we face in this world. So thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for these glorious promises, even some of the things that we've sung about as we look back to the victory that's already been won through the death of our Savior and His glorious resurrection. We look forward to the future and the promise of His return. And so we thank you that we can cling to that promise with absolute confidence. Build that confidence in us today as we look into your word. We pray that you would speak to us through the words printed on these pages as you so often do. Help us see clearly what you've told us, what you have for us. Give us ears to hear what you'd have to say to us this morning. Give us hearts that are receptive, ready to believe what you tell us, and ready to repent wherever necessary. So thank you for the ways that you speak. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The relationship between judgment and salvation in the Bible is an interesting one. The two concepts are intimately related throughout Scripture. In fact, in God's self-revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai, we find these two realities reflected in the very heart of God. Consider what I see as the two most important verses in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those attributes and descriptions of God relate to his acts of salvation. But then he continues, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And those descriptions of God relate to his acts of judgment. Professor James Hamilton writes regarding this passage in his excellent book, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. Thus, salvation and judgment balance each other. The reality of judgment should keep us from thinking of God in purely sentimental terms, as though he were a grandfatherly buddy who just lets things go. The reality of salvation should likewise keep us from thinking of God as merely a terrifying, vengeful judge. Those who flee to him will be saved, but those who do not fear him will be judged. Paradoxically, it is the reality of his terrifying judgment that is meant to send us fleeing to him. In summarizing the thesis of his book, Hamilton writes, Salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament, becoming paradigmatic even into the New. When God saves His people, He delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. This is not limited to Old Testament enemies such as the Philistines. 
At the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out. At the consummation, Jesus will come to afflict those who afflict His people. Salvation for all believers of all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus at the cross. The cross allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Christ, the climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment, is the turning point of the ages. I commend Hamilton's thorough study to you, and I agree with his big picture summary here. However, there is one place where judgment seems to be separated from salvation in an important way. In a very important moment at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Luke tells us about Jesus standing up in the synagogue of Nazareth and reading a passage of Scripture to the Jews in attendance. We pick up the account in Luke 4.17, reading through verse 21. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The specific passage from Isaiah's scroll that Jesus read, we now identify as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Famously, Jesus stopped reading in the first line of verse 2, mid-sentence. Look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 on the screen as we have it in our English Bibles. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. This is where Jesus stopped, but the verse continues, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The passage in Isaiah continues in the next two verses to speak of more aspects of the salvation that this Spirit-anointed Messiah would bring about. However, many students of Scripture have drawn attention to the fact that Jesus doesn't read the words, the day of vengeance of our God. Usually, when this fact is observed, the conclusion is drawn that the reason Jesus stopped short of reading this phrase is because he wasn't bringing the day of vengeance in his first coming. And then the further conclusion is drawn that the day of vengeance would await his second coming. This is often pointed to as the primary example of Old Testament prophecy not always distinguishing between the two comings of the Messiah. However, this second conclusion misses a detail later in Luke's gospel that becomes important for our understanding of the fulfillment of prophecy. In Luke 21, verses 20 to 22, Jesus actually refers to the day of vengeance, but he's not referring to his second coming. These verses are parallel to the verses we're looking at in Matthew's gospel this morning, so we'll return to them in just a bit. But look now at how Jesus utilizes this phrase, the day of vengeance, from Isaiah. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Jesus here suggests that the desolation of Jerusalem that is soon to come at the hands of the Roman armies is to be viewed as God's vengeance against the Jews, as announced by the prophet Isaiah and other prophets. Almost all students of Scripture agree that this passage in Luke is describing the destruction of Jerusalem that would occur in A.D. 70. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he announces the year of Yahweh's favor, the extension of the grace of God to bring about the salvation of all who would believe in Jesus. He identifies himself as the Spirit-anointed Messiah of Isaiah 61, and he was beginning to accomplish the mission of the Messiah, which would culminate in his self-sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to sit on his heavenly royal throne. As he moves toward the cross, however, he proclaims the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, calling people to repent of their sins, believe in him, and to follow him in cross-carrying discipleship. For those who reject that gospel, for those who reject his sacrifice as the only provision For the forgiveness of sins, God's judgment must come. And the beginning point of that ultimate judgment comes against the Jewish people in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple some 40 years after Jesus' death. As we'll see in just a bit, this judgment was closely connected with the Messiah's death in Old Testament prophecy. As we return to Matthew's Gospel this morning, we're going to wrestle with the relationship between Luke's account of Jesus' words and Matthew's. Both are clearly recording the same block of teaching Jesus addressed to a handful of his disciples on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday of Passion Week, just three days before his crucifixion. Last week we began looking at this teaching, which has been referred to as Jesus' Olivet Discourse, his apocalyptic or eschatological discourse, and I've referred to it as Jesus' Kingdom Coming Discourse. The conversation was precipitated by Jesus' plain announcement of the destruction of the temple. From Matthew 24, 3, let me remind you of the disciples' questions. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples want to know how to prepare for the destruction of the temple. And in their mind, if the temple is to be destroyed, then that must mean the end of the age. So they ask for a sign that would tell them it's time to get ready for Jesus' coming and the end of the age. Jesus' initial response comes in verses 4 to 14, which we looked at last week. I suggested that these verses serve as a warning to challenge the disciples away from thinking about a sign. And then he specifies several kinds of events that they might be tempted to view as signs, but should not be viewed as signs. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, false messiahs, and tribulation coming from both outside and inside the church. Instead, they need to focus on their prime directive, preach the gospel of the kingdom. As we talked about last week, the fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic words here 
is certainly understood differently by different Christians. Our passage this morning is perhaps where the differences matter the most. So, I again encourage all of us to exercise humility, to listen well, and to look closely at the text. I will focus on showing you what I see and trying to connect the dots with other scripture. In verse 15, which continues to be highly debated in its meaning, significance, and fulfillment, or fulfillments, plural, I believe Jesus turns to address the disciples' first question. When will the destruction of the temple begin? But instead of giving them a calendar date, which biblical prophecy very rarely does, he tells them what they'll see and what to do when they see it. Let's read verses 15 to 22 to get the whole section in front of us. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let's zoom in on verse 15 to consider the abomination of desolation. What a phrase. The abomination of desolation. Sounds so menacing. And it is. Before we consider the meaning of this phrase and what it refers to, let's observe what he says first. Jesus is explicitly and directly addressing the disciples who asked him the questions at the beginning of the conversation. He is saying to them, and Mark tells us that it was specifically Peter, James, John, and Andrew, when you see the abomination of desolation. Personally, I can't get around this. Jesus clearly expected his disciples to see this event or to know about it happening in their lifetime. The instructions in the following verse, verses broaden out to include others, but in verse 20, he'll return to directly commanding these disciples to pray in a certain way. Thus, whatever the abomination of desolation refers to, Jesus clearly expects at least some of his disciples to be alive to witness it. So, what does this phrase mean? The word translated abomination refers to something utterly horrible or disgusting, especially from God's perspective. In almost all cases in the Bible, the word refers to something idolatrous. From God's perspective, an idol is the most horrible, disgusting, abominable thing in the world. The word translated desolation describes the results of destruction. Related to the word desolate, which Jesus used just before this conversation in Matthew 23, 38, where he said, See, to the Pharisees, see, your house is left to you desolate. So when we put it together, there will be some kind of idolatrous activity that results in God's destructive judgment of Jerusalem, leaving the city and the temple desolate, ruined without inhabitant, 
Jesus further specifies that this abomination will be standing in the holy place. So this will involve people or a particular man doing something idolatrous in the Jerusalem temple. Now, since verse 15 adds, let the reader understand, probably pointing us readers of Matthew back to read the book of Daniel. Let's return there to see if we can find help for understanding what Jesus is talking about when he refers to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. The exact phrase Jesus uses is found on three separate occasions in the Greek version of Daniel. In Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. A related phrase, the transgression that makes desolate, appears in Daniel 8.13. I will not take the time to unpack all these passages. For all those details, I refer the interested listener to our exposition of Daniel in 2020, recordings of which are available online. There is close to universal agreement about the fulfillment of only one of those three passages. Almost all students of Scripture agree that the abomination of desolation referred to in Daniel 11.31 was fulfilled in the idolatrous actions of the Greek Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes in the year 167 B.C. This pagan ruler set up an idol of Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar, thus desecrating the temple so that it could not be used for Jewish worship. It was desecrated and desolate. This event is also described in the vision of Daniel 8. But in Daniel 8.13, the phrase, the transgression that makes desolate, focuses attention on the reality that the reason God allowed such desecration to come to the Jerusalem temple was the rebellion, the transgression of the Jews. Thus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was being used as an agent of God's judgment against the Jews during the Greek Seleucid Empire. Daniel can then use the same phrase, the abomination of desolation, to depict a similar event with the same theological significance. Thus, the event in the Greek kingdom of the 2nd century BC serves as a type for a future idolatrous event that would similarly provoke God's judgment against the Jewish people. However, there is, and always has been, and probably always will be, significant debate about the fulfillment of the references to the abomination of desolation in both Daniel 9.27 and 12.11. Here, I merely repeat my conclusions from our earlier study in the book of Daniel. I believe Daniel 12.11 lines up with the earlier reference in Daniel 11.31 and is referring to the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And in any case... Matthew's wording makes it clear that Jesus has in mind specifically the reference in Daniel 9.27. Jesus uses the phrase, standing in the holy place, and only the Greek version of Daniel 9.27 refers to the holy place. We don't find those words in our English Bibles in Daniel 9 because they're not there in Hebrew. Nevertheless, Matthew certainly would have known and used the Greek Bible. Thus, as many students of Scripture recognize, Jesus is appealing specifically to Daniel 9.27. This is the famous 70 weeks prophecy. 
Again, I refer to our earlier teaching on this passage for the full details. The more reading I do on this subject, the more frustrated I get at people's assumptions. For example, that the 70th week is equal to the tribulation continues to be assumed and not argued for or demonstrated from Scripture. In my reading of Scripture, I see absolutely zero biblical, biblical justification for that equation. When this assumption is made, I believe it leads to all sorts of other confusions besides making mincemeat of Daniel 9.27 itself. Let's take a brief look at Daniel 9.24-27. Here's the famous 70 weeks prophecy. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In a nutshell, my understanding of this passage goes like this. The sixfold purpose of this time period stated in verse 24 is accomplished in Jesus' first coming. Verse 25 describes the time period between the Persian decrees allowing the Jewish temple and the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt and the arrival of Jesus as Messiah. In the first part of verse 26, we see one of the clearest, most straightforward prophecies in all the Old Testament of the sacrificial death of the Messiah. In the second part of verse 26, we see a clear, straightforward prophecy of the destruction of the rebuilt temple and the city of Jerusalem. The only potentially debatable point of the second part of verse 26 is the identity of the prince who is to come. I believe the simplest, most straightforward reading of the text is to equate him with the prince of verse 25, who is Jesus the Messiah. Thus, the people of the prince who is to come either refers to the Roman armies as Jesus' agent of judgment or to the Jewish people who provoke the Romans to invade and flatten the city and the temple. Either choice makes good sense when we come to view the fulfillment of this prophecy. The third part of verse 26 describes this destruction as the conclusion of great warfare. Following from that, the first part of verse 27 refers to the new covenant that the Messiah establishes with his people through his death on the cross during the 70th week. This also provided the true end of Jewish sacrifices. Oh, they continued to slaughter animals and apply the blood to the altar in the Jerusalem temple for nearly 40 years after Jesus' death, but God never accepted another animal sacrifice. The final sentence of verse 27 
a monstrous sentence in Hebrew, very difficult to translate, which probably accounts for why the Greek version of this verse is much, much longer and very expansive. The final sentence of verse 27 refers to the abomination, which will result in the desolation of the temple and the city. And the prophecy concludes with an announcement of the certain doom of the perpetrator of this abominable deed. I believe this prophecy is laying out quite straightforwardly the Messiah's death, establishing the new covenant, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which will occur in A.D. 70. Now, you might have noticed that in my summary, I didn't mention the time periods very much. I didn't focus on the number of weeks, whether or not the weeks symbolize years, or what the breakdown of the period of time looks like. You can get those details in our previous teaching from the passage. However, it is interesting to notice that the New Testament never refers explicitly to the 70 weeks or to the 70th week. We have New Testament references to every single one of the six purposes listed in verse 24. We have Jesus referring here in our passage to the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place. We have Jesus referring to the rebellion and warfare of the Jews and the coming destruction of the city and the temple. And we have New Testament references to the new covenant being established with the many. So from the vantage point of reading Daniel, we can say that there was an abomination of desolation during the Greek Empire, perpetrated by Antiochus IV Epiphanes in 167 B.C., whereby the temple was desecrated and emptied out, and there was to be another abomination of desolation, worse than the previous one, during the Roman Empire, which will result not merely in the temple being temporarily out of order, but rather will result in the utter and final destruction of the temple and the burning of Jerusalem. This destruction would take place in A.D. 70. Now let's return to Matthew's account of Jesus' words and consider the possible fulfillment or fulfillments. As I think you can tell by now, I believe Jesus is speaking of the same event. He is repeating Daniel's prophecy from Daniel 9. As Jesus addressed Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he suggests that at least one of them and some others of the disciples would still be alive to see the abomination that leads to the final desolation and destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Historically, we know for sure that John survived past that date. It's possible Peter was also still alive, but it depends on what specific event we could identify as the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. This too, surprise, is debated. I believe the key to thinking about this rightly is to look for events that would have been early enough in the Jewish war that people could still escape before the final siege of the city in A.D. 70. Many students of history have identified the early events of years 67 or 68 as qualifying for the label abomination. The Jewish historian Josephus, who participated in the Jewish war, is the primary account we have, and he actually mentions that he believed that Daniel prophesied the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. The only passages he could have been referring to would be Daniel 9, 26 and 27, or Daniel 11, 36 to 45. But more than this, his account gives some gruesome details that certainly qualify to be labeled with the word abomination. 
He describes how the zealots commandeered the temple and transformed it into a fortress in late 67. They shed a lot of human blood in the temple. I'll read a less graphic passage from Josephus. These zealots, quote, "...sprinkled that altar, which was venerable among all men, both Greeks and barbarians, with their own blood, till the dead bodies of strangers were mingled together with those of their own country, and those of profane persons with those of the priests, and the blood of all sorts of dead carcasses stood in lakes in the holy courts themselves." The Jewish historian goes on to record his own lament in a similar way to Jesus, addressed to the city of Jerusalem. He writes, O most wretched city, thou couldst be no longer a place fit for God, nor couldst thou longer continue in being after thou hadst been a sepulcher for the bodies of thine own people and hadst made the holy house itself a burying place in this civil war of thine. To top it all off, the zealots named John of Giscala, who became the leader of this mad revolt against the Romans, a man I believe to be featured in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 11, 36-45, installed a man called Fani as high priest, even though it is said that he was mentally incompetent and had no proper qualifications for the priesthood. All of this kerfuffle in the holy place certainly qualifies as an idolatrous abomination transforming the temple from the den of robbers that the Pharisees had made it during Jesus' lifetime into a military outpost, exalting the violent revolutionary aspirations of the zealots. So, as we think about Jesus' words here and their possible fulfillment in the actions of the zealots, we should acknowledge the other side of this event, the vantage point Luke provides in his parallel. Look again at Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Some students of Scripture have suggested that Jesus actually said these words on a different occasion and was warning the disciples of a different event from the abomination of desolation. And Luke has stuck it here for certain reasons. However, most students of Scripture recognize that Luke is most likely paraphrasing Jesus' words, explaining the significance of the abomination of desolation for his Gentile audience. Now, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies is plainly not the zealots' actions in the temple that I just suggested is indeed the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. But I think we can hold these two descriptions tightly together especially given the historical record. For when the Jewish zealots were doing their worst in Jerusalem, the Roman armies responded with threatening military action. In fact, Jerusalem was surrounded by Roman armies on three separate occasions during the Jewish war. The second time, in early AD 68, in direct response to John of Giscala's actions at the end of AD 67. This was three years before Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged for the final time as the Romans prepared to utterly destroy the temple. Thus, the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem and the surrounding area would have heard about John of Giscala's actions in the temple 
and they would have seen the Roman armies marching toward Jerusalem. Jesus is telling his disciples, when you see this cluster of events, it's time to head for the hills, as the saying goes. And before we look more closely at Jesus' instructions in the following verses, let me address another common question at this point. Whether or not someone follows the line of interpretation I've just laid out as my suggestion for the fulfillment of this prophecy there remains the possibility that Jesus could be viewing this as a foreshadowing of a yet future event toward the very end of history. This will tie into how we understand his reference to great tribulation in verse 21. Nevertheless, at this point, I can say that I see no reason to anticipate another abomination of desolation in the future. I have already stated in this series in Matthew that I do not believe the Bible predicts another rebuilt temple in Jerusalem where another abomination of desolation could occur in the holy place. I believe the comments of an author named Jonathan Minn make good sense on this point. He writes, Therefore, even if a temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, it would be an idol temple, with no more theological significance than a Hindu temple or an Islamic mosque. Nothing that might occur in a rebuilt temple could be an abomination of desolation. So, I don't see any biblical reason to hear Jesus predicting some terrible, idolatrous event in a rebuilt temple some three and a half years before his return at the midpoint of a seven-year tribulation period. So what do we make of Jesus' instructions to his disciples in verses 16 to 20? Look at those verses again where he commands them to head for the hills. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. When you see, then flee, says Jesus. When Roman armies begin marching through Judea on the war path to deal with the Jewish zealots in their rebellion... Christian Jews did indeed flee. It is commonly observed that early church writers tell of how Jewish Christians received a prophetic oracle telling them to run away, to make for the region of Perea in the Decapolis. The oracle is almost certainly not a reference to Jesus' words here. Rather, a New Testament prophet like Agabus in the book of Acts addressed the churches throughout Judea with a word from the Lord that it was time to flee. This prophetic oracle was surely rooted in Jesus' announcement here, but it is this prophetic oracle that early church writers mention that spurred the people to leave. It's possible that they heard about the zealots' aggression in the temple, and they saw the Roman soldiers, but they hesitated. In order to preserve life, God sent a prophet to help them connect the dots. These Christians settled in the city of Pella, in the foothills of the Transjordanian mountains. However, some students of Scripture have questioned this as a fulfillment of Jesus' command. Jesus says, flee to the mountains, and Pella doesn't really fit that description. I think this argument is much ado about nothing. Flee to the mountains sounds a lot like our idiom, head for the hills. It's a figure of speech that means get to safety as fast as you can. Some Jews have suggested that there is such an idiom in Hebrew as well. 
Thus, Jesus' point is not to tell the disciples where to go, but that they need to go. And for those in the outskirts of Judea who might have seen the Roman soldiers marching through their towns, to head for the hills might have been exactly the opposite of their instincts. In Luke, Jesus specifies that they must not attempt to enter the city, which is surely what they normally would have done. But Jesus does give further instructions. In verses 17 and 18, he illustrates the urgency of his disciples following his instructions. There must be no delay or hesitation, not even to get what would ordinarily be considered a necessity, such as a prized possession in the house or even a cloak that would enable someone to survive outdoors in winter. It's possible that Jesus is using further rhetorical exaggeration here. After all, when the warfare comes, the Romans will move rather slowly through the region. To be sure, once the city is finally besieged in AD 70, no one will enter or escape. But setting the siege will actually take some time. Nevertheless, we shouldn't minimize Jesus' urgency here. Jesus is saying, get out while the getting is good. In verse 19, Jesus expresses a woe toward pregnant women and women who are nursing babies. Though the ESV translates it here as alas, it's the same word, woe, that was featured in Matthew 23. As we saw there, the word conveys a negative assessment of circumstances. In Matthew 23, it took the significance of judgment against the Pharisees. Here, Jesus merely observes how hard and awful it will be for women in these situations. Fleeing will be terribly difficult for pregnant women and women nursing babies. They will also be in particular danger. Roman armies could be quite vicious toward women and children. In verse 20, Jesus commands his disciples to pray about the timing of their flight. He's not instructing them to pray about the timing of the abomination of desolation or to pray about the timing of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The abomination of desolation and the destruction of the city and temple are on the calendar. And Jesus' Jewish followers can't do anything to change that. But they do have some choice about when they flee. So Jesus instructs them to pray for wisdom about when they flee. Earlier will be better. But if they wait too long and the weather gets worse, then they may still not survive their flight. The word translated winter typically refers to stormy weather, which in Judea would normally be in the winter. But the point is that stormy weather will make travel that much more difficult. He also adds that they should pray that they wouldn't have to flee on a Sabbath. The same concern for difficult travel is in view. On the Sabbath, throughout Judea, Pharisees and other scrupulous Jews could attempt to hinder others from travel. Not to mention shops and eateries and modes of transportation would not be open for business. City gates would remain closed. Thus the disciples need to pray for God to provide wisdom about when precisely they begin their flight, mindful of the additional dangers bad weather and the Sabbath could pose. In verse 21, Jesus characterizes what he's just been talking about as great tribulation. Look again at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Don't gloss over the first word of the verse. For. Jesus is explaining why 
everything is going to be so difficult when his disciples see the abomination of desolation. In all three gospel accounts of this conversation, the word for begins this sentence, tying the language of tribulation and distress to the previous sequence of events. Matthew also includes the word then, a conjunction which most students of Greek recognize often often means at the same general time. It's not necessarily applying the next thing in a sequence. Now, at this point, we have to deal with the problem of assumptions again. As we read this passage, we can bring certain assumptions into play that shape how we understand what Jesus is saying. We looked at one such assumption, that the 70th week of Daniel 9 is equal to the tribulation, as though the tribulation were a defined period of time in Scripture. I still find that to be an assumption, unproven from Scripture. And in this passage especially, there are reasons to push against the, fra- the, the idea that the phrase great tribulation should be understood as though it were capitalized and it were referring to a particular period of history that God has labeled. First, there's no article here. It doesn't say the great tribulation as though it were a known time period. Second, the parallel in Mark 13, 19 doesn't use the phrase great tribulation. It simply says, for in those days there will be such tribulation. Third, the parallel in Luke 21, 23 uses a completely different phrase. It says, for there will be great distress. Finally, the Old Testament background, contrary to the strong assertions of some students of Scripture, does not support the idea of a specified period of time. As most students of Scripture do recognize, Jesus is alluding to the second part of Daniel 12, 1. Let's look at this on the screen. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. As I argued when we looked in depth at this passage in our series in Daniel, I don't think we should take the the phrase time of trouble to be a title for a specified period of time. This particular phrase, a time of trouble, occurs ten times in the Old Testament, and it always, very clearly, refers to a generic hard time. The Hebrew word translated trouble in Daniel 12.1 is a term that has a physical reference to pressure or stress, squeezing. It's very much equivalent to the Greek word translated tribulation in Matthew 24. And both words convey this image of being squeezed in a vice or crushed under a weight. So earlier in this conversation with his disciples, Jesus had said in Matthew 24.9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And Jesus seemed to be saying you can expect that to happen before the destruction of the temple. But here in verse 21, he's speaking of what happens after the abomination of desolation occurs, after the disciples see the abomination of desolation. Even though his followers flee from Jerusalem, Jesus warns them of the great tribulation that they will face. So then, what are we to make of Jesus' comparative language? The great tribulation, he says, this great tribulation, he says, will be such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. I will repeat a rhetorical question I asked when we looked at the similar statement in Daniel 12. How do you compare or measure suffering? Several authors have noted evidence, both in the Old Testament and outside, in other ancient literature, that statements like this are often used as rhetorical figures of speech, simply intending to comment on the 
superlative character of an event, whether incredibly wonderful or incredibly horrific. Of all the examples I could bring to the table, perhaps the most relevant is Ezekiel 5.9, where the Lord says to the Jewish people through the prophet, and because of all your abominations, it's a different word than we're playing with this morning, but it's a synonym, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. For those who might want to take this as a literal expression, consider carefully, God is announcing what he is going to do through the Babylonian armies to the populace of Jerusalem. Verse 10 goes on to describe how the Babylonian invasion will result in the Jews turning to cannibalism and how the Lord will scatter the survivors, exiling them from the land. In verse 12, he speaks of the pestilence and famine and sword bringing death and destruction to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Lord says he's never done anything like that to them before, and he'll never do anything like that to them again. But isn't the Roman invasion characterized by the same horrific realities? Doesn't God's judgment take the same basic form and shape with the same basic results? This unique event language seems to be a common rhetorical device in the ancient world. However, the never again part of Jesus' words may very well suggest that this great tribulation must be viewed as something that is part of history rather than the very conclusion of history. In other words, there will be other waves of tribulation to come. It's also interesting to observe that the Jewish historian Josephus uses similar language in his descriptions of what did happen in A.D. 70. For example, he writes, Neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. In that comparison, you've got the generation of Noah's flood, you've got Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got the Israel judged by Assyria, the Judah judged by Babylon, and now we're talking about the actual judgment of the Jews in the first century in AD 70. New Testament scholar Don Carson adds an oft-quoted comment, there have been greater numbers of deaths, six million in Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and an estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. This has all been very depressing. There is good news here, and it comes now. There's good news in the midst of all the horror. Let's consider the divine shortening Jesus speaks of in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus seems to suggest that the intensity of the tribulation he's referring to could end in the extermination of the human race. Literally, his words could be translated, no all flesh would be saved. A way of emphatically saying no flesh at all. Here in the context of warfare and tribulation, Jesus may use the word saved to mean preserved alive. This detail is one that leads some students of Scripture to see this great tribulation as being necessarily universal in scope, well beyond the confines of first century Judea. However, the phrase all flesh can be a limited reference to all flesh among the Jews 
or all flesh in a particular locale. The exact phrase that we're looking at appears in Jeremiah 12, 12 with that meaning. The prophet says there, Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come, for the sword of Yahweh devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh, literally, no all flesh, has peace. But there's another way to view this. As Jesus speaks of those days, it may be that Jesus is beginning to broaden out his concern, where he has begun with the great tribulation that begins with the abomination of desolation. Jesus envisions the time of tribulation as continuing on along the lines of the birth pains imagery he used back in verse 8. Jesus had spoken there of the beginning of the birth pains. Perhaps we should view the great tribulation of A.D. 67 to 70 as a particularly severe contraction in a series of contractions that would eventually lead to not the anticipated birth of a baby, but instead to the total destruction of life on earth if God didn't intervene. But God will intervene. God will shorten the days. And He will ensure that this metaphorical pregnancy produces a live birth. Jesus says that God will shorten the days for the sake of the elect. Within Matthew's gospel, the elect cannot be limited to Jews. Rather, as it does so often in the New Testament more broadly, it refers to all those God has chosen to save. So if Jesus has broadened out his concern to how tribulation will characterize his followers' lives and the world more broadly from A.D. 70 on throughout history, then perhaps Jesus' statement, no flesh would be saved, actually does refer to spiritual salvation after all. The danger is not the extermination of all life on earth. The danger is false teaching and deception that leads people away from the gospel and away from being saved. Jesus will refer to the elect twice more in this conversation. But in verse 31, the phrase will be His elect, defining the elect as all those who belong to the Son of Man. As commentator Dick France puts it, the boast of Israel to be God's chosen people is now being applied not to the nation as a whole, but to those from among Israel and also from the ends of the earth who constitute the new messianic community. He's talking about the church there. Thus God shortens the days of tribulation. He puts a decisive end to the waves of birth pains by the delivery of the baby. Or, as Jesus will point to in just a few verses, His coming will decisively end the period of tribulation. His coming will bring deliverance to His elect as He raptures those who are alive at that time and resurrects those of His followers who have died before His return. Jesus' death has secured the salvation of those God has chosen to save throughout history. Nevertheless, as we noted last week, the proclamation of the gospel the announcement of the good news of Jesus' first coming, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. All of this needs to be told to people of all nations. God will save every single human being purchased by Jesus' death. This is why the worship of heaven includes the words of Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The elect will be gathered together finally at Jesus' return. We'll hear more about that next week. In the meantime, the call is for everyone everywhere to repent. Turn away from your sin. Believe the good news. Trust in Jesus and be saved from the wrath of God that is coming on the world. So, if my understanding of this passage is on the right track, Jesus indicates that the normal course of history, the normal experience of Christians from the first century onward, even to today, is to be characterized by tribulation. Tribulation will begin from Jesus' vantage point, with a terribly great tribulation in the wake of the Jewish war. But throughout church history, at various times and in various places, that tribulation will be great again. The tribulation, however intense, is directed by God for the judgment of unbelievers. But believers, too, will experience suffering, but not as a punishment for their sins. In a way... We could think of the ongoing tribulation that characterizes church history as the aftershocks of that first great tribulation in the first century. So the call to believers today from this passage, and indeed from Jesus' entire discourse, is to endure those aftershocks faithfully. Enduring the aftershocks will require obedience to Jesus' words. So for those Christians in the first century when they saw the abomination of desolation, when they saw Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, they needed to get out of Dodge. Obedience often leads to the preservation of life. And no matter how intense the tribulation becomes, no matter what forms it takes in our lives and in our future, we need to keep the prime directive in view. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations And then the end will come. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would hasten that end. We pray that you would keep us faithful to the mission. No matter what we conclude about the nature of the tribulation or the great tribulation, whatever we think about these things from your word, would you keep us focused on proclaiming the gospel? Help us to live with the expectation that you might send your son today and help us to live prepared and content and faithful in case he doesn't return in our lifetime. Nevertheless, we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.